Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 456th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most talented and frankly ballsiest filmmakers of our time. The most famous living New Zealander, he is a writer, director, and producer whose films, many made in collaboration with his life partner, Fran Walsh, include 1994's Heavenly Creatures, the landmark Lord of the Rings trilogy spanning 2001 through 2003, the 2005 remake of King Kong, the Hobbit trilogy spanning 2012 through 2014, the feature-length 2018 documentary They Shall Not Grow Old, and most recently, the 2022 Disney Plus documentary series The Beatles Get Back which draws upon 57 hours of footage and 140 hours of audio, most of it never before seen or heard, to chronicle the 22 days leading up to the Fab Four's final public performance in January of 1969. A nominee for nine Oscars, three of which resulted in wins, and the winner of four BAFTA Awards, a Critics' Choice Award, a Golden Globe Award, a Director's Guild Award, and two Producers' Guild Awards, he is now nominated for an Emmy, for Best Directing for a Documentary or Nonfiction Program for The Beatles' Get Back, which itself is nominated for Best Documentary or Nonfiction Series. Sir Peter Jackson. Over the course of our conversation, the 60-year-old and I discussed how a kid from Wellington fell in love with the movies and began making films of his own, many from the earliest days with a focus on visual effects, How a filmmaker who broke into the business making splatter horror films and whose only studio film before The Lord of the Rings had been a box office flop came to be entrusted with that project's not one but three very expensive films. Why he has in recent years somewhat lost his desire to make narrative films and has instead gravitated toward documentaries which require him to pour over and restore archival footage that most people have never seen before what he makes of the current state of the film industry, and of Amazon's upcoming nearly half-billion-dollar TV version of The Lord of the Rings, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Peter, thank you so much for doing the podcast. Great to have you, and really enjoyed the Beatles docu-series, which we're going to come to. But first on this podcast, we truly go back to the very beginning. Can I ask you to share with anyone who may not know, where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Um, I was born and raised in, in uh, Wellington, New Zealand, and my folks were, I mean, I was, I was an only child. So uh, my mum and dad were... Dad worked in the local city council. He was a paymaster. He used to pay um, the council employees their, their wages each week. Um, so it was like a sort of civil servant, really. Mum used to work at men, mending um, hosiery, women's hosiery. Um, and, you know, and, then, and then she obviously brought me up for a while. Then when I was a teenager, she, she was able to go back to work again. And, um, yeah, it was a very nice, sim- simple upbringing, nothing complicated. Nothing um, awful. It was, they were very, very sweet, sweet parents. Yeah. Ne- neither of them were particularly film orientated. They, they didn't, you know, when I started to develop an interest in movies um, and grabbed their Super 8 camera, which they got for home movies, you know, just for making um, family holidays and things, and I started shooting, um, you know, models with it and monsters and things, they, they didn't quite know what to think. But. Uh, <laughs> But they, but they, you know, you know, it was a good lesson because it was, a, it was, it was two parents who 
had no affinity for what their son wanted to do, but they were were 100% supportive the entire time. Well, and I did gather from some of the prep I did that that, that really, I guess it was a fateful thing, the fact that they received as a Christmas gift this camera, which you then commandeered. Uh, but I mean, a few things, right? It wasn't just that. It was that you happened to watch on TV some films that really shaped your interest, not just in filmmaking, but special effects in particular, right? Yeah, well, I, I never thought about being a filmmaker like as you'd think about a, a director or a writer or anything, um, particularly because that, I mean, I, I didn't even understand what that was when I'm, you know, we're talking about when I'm seven or eight, nine years old. Um, but they did get a Super 8 camera for Christmas from a, a, a friend of theirs down the road, worked for Kodak, and Kodak had put the most simple, basic box camera together that they could sell to, to sort of any, anybody for taking home movies. And so my my auntie who lived down the road gave my mum and dad um, one of those for Christmas and I immediately grabbed it and because I'd already started making models and things and monsters and I thought, oh, I could actually use this camera to f- and that model I made and I could somehow, I could connect the two together. And, I, and, and, and a lot of that came from um, from uh, Jerry Anderson TV shows that in New Zealand in the, in the we were talking about the early 60s, really, um, you know, Thunderbirds, Stingray, Captain Scarlet, those were, those were as big as it, big as it got. They, they, were, they were huge. And, and so I was, um, I said about uh, making copies of the models and then when this camera arrived in the house, it made me realise that the that the Thunderbirds that I was watching on TV were model, were, were sort of models and they were being filmed. And now that now that this camera arrived, I could film mine as well. So I was just sort of it, it all just came together really in a in a stumbly, ad hoc kind of way. Well, and it seems like by the time you were, I guess about fifteen, you were you were committed enough to this that not only do you have a film in a school competition, but that film I believe is on television uh you're thinking already time to maybe leave school a little early and focus on this but you know being in new zealand what were your what were your models of what that would even look like uh nothing really i i mean during that that, that sort of eight nine year period of sort of being 15 it was uh, i started to, to i started to have ambitions to work in film um but i I, 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 I also had saw King Kong on TV, the original Willis O'Brien, you know, um, King Kong. And that was when I was about nine, nine, eight, eight or nine or ten or something. And, and that, that movie, more than Thunderbirds in a way, that movie really nailed, nailed me. I just thought it was the most uh, incredible thing, thing, thing that I'd ever seen. Going to a forgotten island and encountering dinosaurs in a large gorilla, I just thought this is, is, this is as good as it gets. And so I started to learn or at least understand about stop motion animation. And then, and because I was, I was an only child and I, you know, and I lived in a very small town. There was only about five hundred people in the town I was in. I, it wasn't like I was part of a big social group or anything. So, I I started to gravitate towards stop motion as a as a career because I thought, well, that's something great. You know, and obviously Ray, Ray Harryhausen was a big influence too because um, Willis O'Brien was he probably passed away by that stage. And but Ray was still making films, and I was reading every article I could find, which was not much um, because it was pre, pre-internet and so I, I, I started to gravitate to the idea of being a stop motion animator simply because it was a solitary um, thing that you could do and it, and it produced the films that I loved. I mean the yeah, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, what a, what, a great movie, what a great movie that Cyclops is my favourite favorite all-time monster so and, and because all the photographs that I could find showed Ray Harryhausen all by himself 
um, bending over a table with um, with a model, I thought, well, I, I'm, I, I can't, that is some, something I can do. Because obviously I was aware that films had huge crews and lots of budgets and, and famous film stars, and all that was just way too much for, for me to even th think about. But um, to go back to your question, um, the New Zealand film industry didn't really exist. I mean, obviously the film industry existed, in, in, but we didn't make feature films, and it wasn't until 1976 that the first feature films that New Zealand had made in quite some time appeared, and it was um, Roger Donaldson with Smash Palace and Jeff Murphy made a film called Sleeping Dogs. And so, you know, having been um, having this ambition for several years to be a filmmaker in, in a country that didn't actually make films was kind of strange. But then, as, as I say, about 1976, 75, 76, when I was 15, 16 years old, um, New Zealand finally started, started to make films. Now, what I think people who look at your filmography may not appreciate, they see that probably the, the first directorial credit is Bad Taste, comes out in 87. But that was actually, for reasons which I hope I can ask you to explain, that was a four-year endeavor during which most of your time was actually spent at a newspaper office, I believe. So why was, and you're living at home, can you explain the sacrifices that you and I guess your parents had to make to allow you to at least show that you were worthy of a full-time career as a filmmaker? Well, I mean, it, you know, even though Roger Roger and, um, and um, Jeff Murphy had started to make films, there wasn't really a, a sort of a, a, an industry that hired young people particularly, you know, that, they, that it was still a, a rare occasion for New Zealand to make a feature film for the next few years. And so it wasn't like you know that that um, those movies appearing on the scene suddenly created a whole uh, range of job opportunities that just didn't really happen. So I, I, I it, to me, filmmaking was something I was going to do whether I was doing it for somebody else or me or whatever. I would, I, I just loved it. So, it, and, and for me, in my mind, it became all about money, uh, not not money to earn, but money to spend because I, I was. I'd been working um, on the Super 8 movies for several years. And so when I'm now about f 15 years old, I guess. And my parents wanted me to go to university, you know, and I, they wanted me to be an architect, and that's where their hearts were and all of this. And I, and what I wanted to do was to earn money somewhere, somewhere anywhere. I mean, I, I had no concept of getting a job making, in, in the film industry. It didn't really exist. But I knew I wanted to get a 16mm camera because I, I was spending an awful lot of time on my 8mm movies and in the back of my mind, I thought, well, I'm wasting my time because eight millimeter, you never can't really screen it anywhere. It's not going to ever do a thing. So I was sort of, I was aware I was, I was, um, I, I was on a road to nowhere, if, if, if you like. Um, so I just said, said to my parents, look, I, I know you want me to go to university for another three, four, five years. I, I said, I, I just want to leave school, get a job, and actually save up to buy a, a 16 mil camera. In fact, there was a shop in town, a, a, a second-hand camera store that had a 16mm camera for two and a half grand that I, I used to go and just stare at it for, for ages and ages. <laughs> so I even had the camera locked at so, um So that night uh, we looked at the newspaper, the job advertisements in the newspaper, um, and there was a job for something called a photo engraver, um, which I hadn't got a clue what a photo engraver was, but at least it had the word photo. In the um, in the title, so I went for an, an interview, and, and it turned out to be the local new, newspaper, and it was a photo engraving um, apprenticeship. So I I got that uh, job, if, if you like it, and it was a, it was a, an apprenticeship, and I was there for seven years, 
Um, I think the apprenticeship was four years. I mean, when I signed up, I had to sign up for four years to complete the apprenticeship, and then I ended up staying on for three, three more years so I could earn money to pay for this film that I started. So um, after about two years, I'd saved up enough money to buy the 16mm camera, you know, and, and I was working at, at, at the newspaper. Now, when I got the 16mm camera, I had inherited another problem for myself because the film stock was so expensive. I... I sort of knew on, on, on it was going to be more expensive than Super 8, but it was like four or five times more, more expensive. And so I could literally, you know, to put three minutes of film through that camera, I would have to um, save up money from my photo engraving job for, for about a month. And then after a month, I could buy a three-minute roll of film. I, was, I, I remember I was getting paid 75 bucks a week was, was, my, was, my, was my salary. And and um, and to get a roll of sixteen millimeter film, get it processed, developed, and, and printed, I, it was about thirty seven, thirty eight bucks at the time. So, you take that off my weekly pay, or pay, and it's like uh, there was anything left. So anyway, I I thought so. Well, I got the camera. I hadn't filmed a single frame of film, but I had I had the camera. Then I saved up and I bought bought a few rolls of film, and I thought, well, I, I, I need to learn how to use six sixteen mil. I need to actually figure figure this out because there's no film schools or anything that, that I didn't know any, anybody that could teach me. Um, I, I got to figure this. It's got, it's got a whole lot a whole lot more buttons than than the little Kodak box camera had. It's got all the, all sorts of things that I hadn't got a clue about. So, but 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 given the the cost of the film stock. I just thought I can't waste it, so I I, um, I got uh, a few of my friends from the photo engraving department. You know, they, we had about about uh, fifteen or twenty guys that we were working with. No 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 um, girls. It was all blokes. Um, in, in the, and so I dreamt, I dreamt up a little storyline uh, which would be like a little ten minute short film. I saved up for three or four rolls of film, which I thought would you know cover the ten minutes. I I asked I, I asked my friends at work if they'd come and help me on a Sunday to shoot this thing, and they said yeah sure sure. They, I mean and they weren't interested in films particularly. They, these guys are. They're interested in soccer and girls and cars and that sort of thing. <laughs> and so, um, and so, I started shooting that film. And um, just to cut the long story short, um, uh, the problem was that I I I film on a Sunday and be quite happy with what I had shot. And then I I had, I had a whole week because I hadn't quite finished. I had to do, shoot do some more, but I had a whole week being a photo engraver now, where I I, I was sitting there doing my photo engraving work, thinking up new ideas for this film. So come the next uh, Sunday. I, I, it was finishing off what we did last Sunday, but now I've got some more ideas that we could do, do some more stuff. And so um, this thing just grew over four years, basically. It became a feature film. Um, week by weekly increments, it slowly became a feature film. And, and it wasn't really four years like every Sunday we went out and shoot because it was a situation where I, I had to stop shooting because I couldn't afford the film, film anymore. And so I, would, I, would, um, I got into a situation where I would save up, buy four rolls of 16 mil. And we're talking about a roll being about a, a three or four minutes, a, a 50 foot roll. Um, with the hundreds, I can't remember. Anyway, they um, and, and so I would I would get the guys together on a Sunday. I'd go and shoot whatever the the scenes were that 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 I had um, figured out. And, and it was sixteen mil neg. But then I realised I couldn't afford to actually process an egg. I'd spent all my all my money on buying the, the, the film stock, but I couldn't actually get it developed, let, let alone a print. So what I do then is I put the film rolls in the fridge at home. 
<laughs> and I couldn't do any more filming for months because I was now I was now officially saving up to process those four roles, and and that only gives you a process near because I also had to pay another big chunk of money to get a print made that I I could um, actually watch. So it was it was yeah it was a stock start process over f- four years. The New Zealand Film Commission finally got to see a version of what I'd done um, towards the last three or four months, and they agreed to put money in to finance the post-production, meaning that we could get a composer, we could do a neg cut, do a colour grade, and um, and it actually went to the Cannes Film Festival in 1987, and it sold it sold well. The, the, the New Zealand Film Commission had the sales rights to it, and I think they sold it to 50 countries within the first 20, 24 hours or something, so... So yeah, suddenly there's no more uh, no more engraving for no. you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, now also, is it correct that it's got to be around that time that you meet somebody named Fran Walsh? Yep. Yep. The first time I met Fran is that uh, I had about a 90-minute version of Bad Taste. I still hadn't got the climax shot. And um, I had met a guy who was in the film industry, sort of in the peripherals. He was, he was a third AD and um, – and I said to him, oh, do you, you, could you look, have a look at this film that I've been shooting? Because I didn't know whether it was any good or not. And you're a third AD. You, you obviously know, know your <laughs> stuff. Um, he, was just, he was the same sort of age as me. And, 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 and so we arranged a, a time that he'd show up and I'd have my projector there with my, with, with, with my great big roll, roll of cut film. And he, he, brought along a, um, he brought along a couple of friends of his, one, one of which was Fran, Fran Walsh who he'd met as a writer. She was working in, in TV. Um, and so she came along to just to look at an early cut of Bad Taste, give me some thoughts. I think within two or three weeks, I, I, I gave her a, paint, a paintbrush and she was painting sets because I, still, I still had the climax to do. So I got her involved in set building. And um, um, <laughs> so did anybody that ran across me in those days was, was, uh, was engaged to do something, something <laughs> like that. Um, I, 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 I had to blow up a car. Um, uh, you know, sort of a rocket launcher as a car, and so I, I had a couple of mates who knew, who knew a little bit about explosives. You were a tiny little bit about explosives. I said, "Oh, could you, could you come, uh, come, come along and blow, blow up this car for me?" Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, I realised in hindsight they didn't really have, have a clue, but it was it was, <laughs> it was a big explosion. That's for sure. Right, so, yeah, right. So, yeah. So, so I met Fran then, and yeah, we're still we're still at, at it now. Well, and I, I know you've said in other interviews that I read to, to prep for this, I guess it was a couple of years of really just being good friends before it became mm-hmm. life partners, which mm-hmm. which is probably the actually the, the best way to yeah. do these things, right? Yes, um, yes, it is. Yeah. No, 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 no. Fran, Fran and I became buddies over, over about two, two or three years before, before anything happened. Yeah. Um, now, interestingly, I guess, uh, obviously, these, these first several years that you're in the business, after the first film that we've just been talking about, there's Meet the Feebles in 89, Brain Dead in 92. Sort of, it seems like you were heading in the direction of comedic horror, I guess it might be fair to say. Um, was that because that allowed you to employ this, uh, to apply this interest in special effects, visual effects, or was that actually just the, would that have been your path anyway? Um, it's a good question. I, it's, um, I, I've, I've always been attracted to movies that are um, larger than life. You know, I mean, um, Hitchcock quote that I love, um, some people's films are slices of life minus slices of cake. And, and that, <laughs> that's been my philosophy. So I've always, you know, so, uh, you know, other people were watching Truffaut and 
and and uh, um, um, you know, you know uh, Bergman films and everything. And I was watching the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad when I was that sort of that age. You know, I, I, they were the films that I liked. Um, so there was a bit, a bit of that. I, I loved the fact that films could show you things and take you places that you were never going to go in your real life. So certainly that was that was always it's always been from since, since the day I saw Thunderbirds on TV as a five year old or King Kong as an eight year old. That's always been the the thing that's attracted me. Um, but but however, what, what I would also say is that um, there were two other things going on at the time. Is that this is 1987, maybe now, 88, and you're right at the height of the great that great splatter period with Sam Raimi. I think he just maybe he just done Evil Dead Two. George Romero, the um, the Dawn of the Dead was the most awesome film that I, that I'd ever seen in my life at that point. Um, uh, the, the reanimator, Stuart Gordon. You know, so I was just loving these movies, and so it's not. To, to me, it's not anything strange about that. That was the direction that I was heading because those those were the films I loved. But also, I would what I what I would say is that when you're you know young like that, starting out, you've got no no money, zero budget. Um, you've and so to me, a horror movie, you know, a splatter movie, whatever you want to call it, is a good way to 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 get um, to get some some experience because you can you can do a lot in a horror movie for not much money, and yet you can still achieve a a reaction from the from the audience you know if you're trying to do a rom-com then you're going to need a really witty script and you're going to need some um, actors that can perform it really well you know you so you don't go the rom-com way you, you go the horror film way because because that's much it's much much easier to get an impact in a, in, a, in the horror film genre when you have very uh, limited resources than it is in, in a more more sophisticated um form of film, yeah if you like well, I find it interesting, though, that, you know, people you're very associated with uh, Weta, which people know as the VFX, uh, I guess, house that you started in in 93. But yes. I find it interesting that that was basically right ahead of maybe one of the the less VFX centric projects that you did, which was Heavenly mm. Creatures. I know there's some some of that there, but this is maybe would it be fair to say this is one of the first times where you're really it's performance centric as or actor centric as much as anything. This is just to remind people a film about a, a infamous crime in New Zealand, but you've you discovered essentially. Melanie Linsky and Kate Winslet to play these two <laughs> sisters who are at the center yeah. of it. Pretty yeah. good uh, eye for talent, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, in terms of the writing of it, I know that you had said, you know, you co-wrote this with Fran. You said, quote, probably the greatest fun we've ever had working on a script, close quote. So I guess I just wonder, why is Weta coming along just at about the same time as Heavenly Creatures? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, what what Fran deserves a huge credit for is to is – to, you know, to I mean, I I I I'd been sort of ten ten or twelve years doing stop motion, you know, in limited ways with with Super Super Eight, then sixteen, and then um, doing horror films and stuff. But um, and in a way, I'd I'd, I'd under I hadn't really thought much about writing, uh, you know, during that early time because it was that the writing part of it. I, I figured somebody else eventually does that. They write a, a monster, and if I'm lucky, I'm going to have a career where where I get to to um, animate the monster that somebody else has written about. So that's where I was sort of heading. And then I met Fran, and she started to talk to me about scripts. And she um, wrote uh, um, or co-wrote the second and third films. I made Meet the Feebles and um, Brain Dead. And, and 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 then while we were working on what, what we used to do in those days, um, 
is that because our world in New Zealand was that the New Zealand Film Commission would would put funding into a film, and then they would always they always had a pattern really where they'd take it to the Cannes Film Festival as as a, and, and be and become the sales agents for it, or maybe they did it in Venice sometimes too, but generally it was Cannes. And so we we got into the swing of of the idea that if you're if you've just made a film that's got film commission money, they're going to take it to Cannes. We're going to get to go go to Cannes and do do a junk and stuff. But um, but have your next script ready to go, because you know because if, so the people if the film that you've just made gets some um, interest at Cannes, you want to be able to say to whoever you're talking to, it's normally a foreign sales agent, um, Bob. By the way, we we have our next film film already written. That was, so we got into the habit of don't don't take the last film to Cannes until you know if you don't have the script for the next for the next one, because otherwise you're not you're not um, you're not able to capitalise on the moment. So Fran said to me while we were working on Branded, she said to me, um, "Have you did, have you ever heard of the Parker Hume murder?" And I and I hadn't I, I, I hadn't turned out to be one of New Zealand's most famous murders. Which and Fran had had um, an interest in it for quite a long time, and she started to talk to me about it. And, I, and so we just the two of us decided, well, well, it would make an interesting film. And it wasn't it was nothing to do with the fact, oh, let's get into a different genre, let's move on from the splatter films. It was just simply she talked to me about the story of these two girls and we thought it would make a great film. So she and I went down to um, Christchurch, which is in the South Island, which, which where the events happened. And fortunately, we, we, we got there at about 1992. So we got there about 40 years, 38 years after the, after the events happened. And so there was, there was still a lot of people alive that were, that were very intimately involved. I mean, I'm sure they're just about all, all dead now. But, and there was a lot of the locations that things took place were still, were still intact in Christchurch. Um, so we, we, we really had a great time researching and, and um, interviewing people that were classmates of these two girls, interviewing the policemen that arrested them. Interview, I mean, all sorts of people, all sorts of people. It was, it was, and, and that's why it was, in many respects, the greatest um, script writing experience because it was, it was like a true story that we were immersing ourselves by talking to the people that were that were um, involved in it. Um, and so, and so. Um, uh, you know that that is it is certainly a film where where I, you know, I, I got to think about movie making outside of just um, grossing people out with um, cheap uh, <laughs> little things. But, but we we cast. Uh, uh, let's talk about the casting for a moment. We cast um, just to show how random life it life is. <laughs> we we cast Kate Winslet out, out, of, out of the UK. You know, she was the first. Um, one and and, um, and and we knew that she was going to be a big star. She hadn't done a film then. I think she'd been in a British TV sort of series, a um, a, um, a medical series. Yeah, you know, it was a BBC thing, but she she hadn't done any movies. So so we 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 got Kate. So we had one of the two girls. Both both of the two girls had to be sort of equally powerful in in, in a different kind of way. And, and Kate was playing the English girl, uh, Juliet Hume, and we had, we had to find a New Zealand girl who was a very different personality. And we auditioned and auditioned and auditioned and couldn't find anybody. And um, and I'll just <laughs> this, is, this, is, this sounds crazy, but it's true. We got to about we were about two or three weeks um, out from the first day of the shoot, and we still hadn't cast. Um, we still hadn't cast the the other the other girl, um, um, Pauline Parker. Her name was in, in the in the true life story. 
And so, and, and then it got down to two weeks. Then it got down to 10 days before we were going to start shooting. And we had no nobody. And I remember Fran just saying, I distinctly remember it just saying, this is insane. We've spent so much time on this. And now we're two weeks out and we, and we haven't got, got our Pauline Parker. So she got in a car and she started to drive from town to town. Um, and she would, she would phone the school, whatever the local school was in the town, coming up, she would phone them up and say, hi, I'm working on a film, we're casting, a, we, uh, we want a 15-year-old girl, sort of a dark hair, um, um, acting experience not really not really important but because we, we can certainly work, work with them, but they have to have a presence. And, um, and she would arrive at the school about, you know, an, an hour later, she, hour phone call, she'd arrive at the school, they'd have the kids li- lined up for her to, her to inspect and she'd, and then, and she went through two or three schools and then she arrived at New Plymouth Girls High School. This is a town, town called New, New Plymouth. And, she, and the teacher had, um, you know, again, got the phone call an hour or two um, ahead of time. The teacher had plucked out um, two or three girls from the, from the drama class who she thought might be worthy. And, and, and these girls were in the front row. And, um, and Fran looked, looked at them and said hi and had a chat to them. And then at the, right, right at the back, at, back of, the, of the classroom, there was, there was this young 15-year-old girl who just sat there, didn't say a thing and didn't, and didn't appear to be engaged that much and Fran said Who, who's she and um, they said oh that's that's a, that's a that's a girl called Mel and and Fran said could I could I have a talk, a talk with Mel and she and she took Mel, Mel out out into the corridor and she said are you are you interested in, be, in being in a film and she, and she and she spoke to her and then within a day or two we um, Fran met her parents at, the, at that trip and um, within a day or two she had joined joined us on set I mean it was literally Fran's standing in the classroom saying, and who's, and who's that girl at the back that, that, that started Mill's entire career going? I mean, it's and just... Unbelievable. It's, yeah. And now you both are going to the Emmys as nominees this year after many other great <laughs> accomplishments. But uh, And we'll say that, of course, with Heavenly Creatures, won prizes at Venice and Toronto, grossed $12 million worldwide, and the first Oscar nomination for both you and Fran for original screenplay. Um, but I wonder, after that, when I imagine now you're more on the radar of the international film industry than ever before, uh, you you made your first studio film, The Frighteners, in 96, is with Michael J. Fox, a decent amount of effects shots there. Uh, I think Zemeckis as the EP on that one. Cost $38 million. There's a big, first time you're really dealing with a project of large scale. Were you at home immediately with that kind of a thing or was that uh was that a big jump um the, the budget is is not so much of a jump as you think i mean i i mean heavenly creatures crossed uh two two and a half million us i think so it is certainly you know you know it's, it's an it's you know number wise it's a jump but at the end of the day as a director you're just showing up on set figuring out what lens to use where to put the camera and um and it makes it a little bit easier like in the early films um, you know, a, a steady cam. Having a steady cam on set was an expensive thing. So, I used to have to go through the script of um, bad taste. I mean, heavenly creatures. It was like you know, I'd be told, well, you can afford a steady cam on six days of the of the you know forty five day shoot or whatever it was. So, can you go through the the um, the schedule, Peter, and just pick the six days that you'd like to have a steady cam? I mean, that, that was that was what it was like. And then when the frontiers came along, it was like we we had a steady cam in the truck all, all you know you know every single day. So there was there was perks like that. But I didn't really answer the the, the weather question. Um, 
what happened concurrently with us making heavenly creatures, which had in theory it had some sort of little uh, morphing type um, sort of effects, not, not, not anything particularly remarkable, but just to show this, this imaginative world that the girls were inventing. And, and it, that coincided exactly with Jurassic Park coming out. Oh, so yeah. while, we're, while we're in, probably in post-production on Heavenly Creatures probably, um, we go, to, Fran and I go and see Jurassic Park and it's like, oh my God, the Tyrannosaurus is like, it's so real because I, I was just a stop motion guy up to then. And then at that point, we knew that computers, CGI, and, I, and I, these are words that I didn't even really understand at all at the time, <laughs> C- computers, CGI were going to be the way of the future. That was that, that I mean, we see Terminator 2 as, as well, but that was because it was a silvery guy, you didn't, I didn't understand how far CGI could go. I mean, sure, if, if we can do sil- silvery metal people, that's fine, but, uh, you know, a, a t- T-Rex with all its skin texture and its muscles and its breathing, it just blew, blew my mind. And, and at that point, the world became very simple that if I want to carry on making films that have visual effects, you know, the, the type of films I like, I'd better start um, learning about these computers because it seems like suddenly the old world is becoming a, a, something very new very quickly. And so Heavenly Creatures didn't re- need any CGI of any description, really. We could have done it uh, various ways. But we did have a couple of sequences that we thought, well, if we get a computer... Um, um, we, we could at least just do a few of these shots for Heavenly Creatures and at least we'll be learning what the computer... So we, we bought one silicon graphics computer ourselves. We just... I can't remember what it cost, 30, 35 grand or something. And um, it was it was a silicon graphics indigo computer, I remember. And uh, and we hired one person that actually knew what buttons to press. And so <laughs> we did the we did some really... And, and today they look pretty, pretty, pretty crude, but we did about 20 or 30... Um, CGI shots for Heavenly Creatures, which were literally only there so we could learn how these computers worked because we knew that that was going to be the future. Um, and then, then after Heavenly Creatures was finished, we we still only had one computer. Um, but we had we met Bob Zemeckis um, um, at some, I can't remember how, 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 how we met Bob now, but he, he was producing a uh, television series to, called Tales from the Crypt a 30-minute anthology series. And he said, oh, yeah, yeah. I think, he, I think he saw Heavenly Creatures and liked it, and we were happened to be in L.A. passing through, and he met with us. And he said, hey, have you guys got any ideas? Like, I'm doing a Tales from the Crypt show. You know, it can be anything you want, you know, anything spooky. So Fran and I um, got home. We, we went, had, had, had a walk to the shops because we, we needed to buy some milk or cheese or something. And we sort of talked about the whole Frighteners plot on the way to the shop, you know, that a, a fake psychic guy. You know, you know, seems to be scamming people, but it turns out that he's actually is, is a real psychic guy, but he's still scamming people. We just sort of came yeah. up with this silly plot, and so we pitched it to Bob for the Tales from the Crypt, and he said, oh, I like it, I like it a lot, but it doesn't feel like a TV episode to me. It feels like a film. I'll, I'll, I'll produce it as a film. You you, you guys write and, and uh, you can direct it, I'll produce it, let's just do a film. And and so it, we sort of we wrote the script, um, did the movie? Bob, Bob was fantastic. Bob, Bob in, a, in a way, I mean, it was shot shot in New Zealand, so it wasn't really a big um, opening the door to Hollywood in my mind so much. And so, so I could I could stay in my comfort zone. We could still work in the same town. We could still work in the, with the same crews that we'd worked with with the same people. But um, Bob was fantastic. He really held my hand during the the more Hollywood um, aspects of that. <laughs> I always remember it was one thing I'm always very grateful for Bob for, although. 
people could argue that it's a, a lesson, lesson that I've um, forgotten over the years. I just thought with someone like Bob Zemeckis, you know, the whole idea of a big 800-pound gorilla was that whenever you got into trouble, you just t- turn to Bob and, and say, um, you know, Bob, we're, gonna, we're, we're falling behind schedule, we're falling behind budget. Can you can you talk to the studio and get us some some more money? I thought that's how it kind of worked, you see. So, <laughs> and, we, and we were trying to stick to budget as much as possible, but I remember there was a moment when we had a big chase scene that we were going to coming up to shoot, we, you know, we were been shooting for, for seven, seven, eight weeks, and um, and yet the we were, we were falling a little bit behind budget, and so we we were not. And this big chase scene was coming up, and um, and it, it's clearly it, it was clear that if we if we shot the chase and all that, we weren't going to have we were going to be out out of out of money by the time we finished shooting, and so I said to Bob, I I, I think we're going to be about you know four or five million dollars short, Bob. You know, think, thinking uh, I was expecting him to say, "I'll get that for you, Peter." Don't, don't worry. <laughs> but he didn't. He didn't say say that. He said the best thing that he that he could could have said. He said, uh, four or five million dollars, eh? So what? So what are you going to do, do about it, Pete? What What are you going to do, do about that?" And and and, I'm, I'm, and to this day, I'm grateful for Bob say, saying that to me. It wasn't like I'm your guardian angel. I'll go shake shake up the universal tree and we'll get some more money. It was like he swung it straight back back back, back on me. You can't be five million dollars over budget, Peter. So how so how are you going to deal, deal deal with that? So I went home that night and I cut out the big chase scene, and I took took it in the next day. And and, and he looked at it and he said, "Yep, this is a good this is a good save, good good save." <laughs> and um, you know and. Yeah, as, as as I say, people people could argue that it's a lesson I've forgotten since, since then, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I appreciated that, that that at the time. Well, I I guess in a way though, the the greatest legacy in a way of the Frighteners may be the fact that you now own several computers. That as long as you have them, what are you going to do to make use of them, right? Yeah, well, the, the frighteners, um, the frighteners, we, you know, the script sort of came because we were, the script was not well, the script idea wasn't ambitious at the beginning because it was for a thirty-minute TV episode. But then once it became a feature film, and, and as part of the whole budgeting process at the begin at the beginning of it, we we realised one one um, computer wasn't going to get these shots done. It was about five hundred CGI shots maybe in the frighteners, and and we ended up with thirty-seven computers. 30, which is sort of 37 or uh, 40 crew members as well. So, so, so the whole CGI thing of that got amped right, right up um, uh, hugely. But it was also terrifying because, you know, you get into a, into a, a a spiral. I guess it's like, okay, well, we've got 37 computers, we've got 40 people on the payroll. Now, when when we get the frighteners finished, what's going to happen? We can't afford. We can't afford to pay. 40, 40 people with no with no income. I mean, I mean, we'd um, had no money at all. We, you know, mortgaged our houses at this point for for the earlier stuff. We, could, we had no money, so you realise you built an, you built something, but it's like an albatross. It's not some. It's not all that all that much fun. And so after the frighteners, we were in a re- we were really stuck because we we had a infrastructure that was costing us us money. We were we were paying these wages now. Once the film stopped paying, and then because because the shots had been finished, we were stuck and 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 again bob bob z bob's makers was incredibly helpful to us because he could see the dilemma we're in we didn't have another movie to to immediately take all the cgi um um department across to at that point and we and we were we were certainly developing films but we we were going to have a 
a three or four month gap where we weren't couldn't pay any anybody's wages. So Bob was doing contact with um, Jody Foster. So he said, uh, "Do you think you guys are up to doing this this, uh, this uh, contact scene I've got in this film? This this uh, wormhole scene where where this character goes goes down a, goes down a cosmic wormhole." And I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. I, I looked at the <laughs> and um and I and, and he said, "Look, Peter, I'll let you guys I'll let you guys do." The wormhole scene. So long as you you keep keep an eye on it and sort of to be a, be a second unit director for me. I mean, Bob shot the plates of of Jerry Foster and everything, but he 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 was in LA. We were in New Zealand still, and, and um, so we took on the wormhole scene, which was really just very very kind of Bob because that enabled us to keep our our crew employed um, just just long enough for the next film film to come up. I'm sorry, because you probably had to tell this story more times than you care to. But just can you explain how in that moment when you're thinking about what do we do next, you and Fran, uh, I believe you're considering a variety of fantasy ideas and sort of seeking something like the Lord of the Rings. And then I guess it's just sort of like, why not do the Lord of the Rings? But then I guess it's really a, a question of if you would be willing to connect the dots uh just because it's now a legendary Hollywood story, how you guys go from that thought to Harvey Weinstein to Saul Zantz to Bob Shea, if you wouldn't mind. Yep, I, I, I can do that. Um, it, it wasn't Lord of the Rings at, at all that was going to follow the Frighteners. It was King Kong. So during that during that patch where we'd finished the Frighteners, it was it was you know it hadn't been released yet, but um, Bob had saved our necks by giving us contact a, a sequence from Contact to do. Um, we we had we were we were talking to Universal about um, a remake of King Kong, which, you know, for my my history with um with that movie, I, I I couldn't I couldn't think of anything better to, better to do. I, you know, in a sense, that, that would be my ultimate dream to do King Kong. So we started working on King Kong, and and you know, people came back on the payroll, and a certain amount of pre-production money got spent. And um, and then the Frighteners came out, which was not great box office, pretty disappointing box office. And suddenly, you know, it was a classic example of how I was. Uh, while the Frighteners was was unreleased, I had a certain amount of heat, and so Universal were were, you know, starting to finance pre pre production on Kong. And then when when the Frighteners came out and it didn't do particularly well at the box office, um, suddenly I, I don't have uh, heat heat anymore. That was a real a real lesson. And. Um, and they, all, I mean, what the official story was, which is sort of un, not, it's not untrue, is that they had also Mighty Joe Young, uh, another big ape movie, had been green lit already and, and was being made, and they were they were Universal were looking at a, at a King Kong versus Mighty Joe Young release, and and you know and um and there had been volcano pictures competing and all of that sort of stuff, so they certainly went went um went, it certainly went cold on King Kong, and um and we had. We were thinking about what to do after after King Kong. We'd actually written a script of King Kong at that point too, and so we had been thinking about a fantasy film like like a Seventh Voyage and Bad Jason and the Argonauts style fantasy film. And um, we had a first look deal with Miramax as a result of Heavenly Creatures. So they bought Miramax weren't, uh, was not involved in the production of of, um, of a Heavenly Creatures. It was two and a half million, and the New Zealand Film Commission. I think we got a German. Company to, to co-finance it, so um, Miramax simply picked it up as a negative pickup um, deal. But but on the basis of doing that, they they got um, some kind of first look deal um, with Fran and I, um, which didn't include King Kong because the 
because that had already started, but it was going to be whatever happened next. So we, we started to think, a friend and I were thinking about a fantasy film because I was thinking, you know, what, and, 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 you know, it was apart from me loving fantasy, it was also what can we use all these computers for? We've now got, um, you know, we've now got 40, 40 people, 40 computers to have to, to look after. Otherwise, if we lose them, they're going to, you know, and, and they had skilled up quite well on the Frighteners. They were doing good work, you know, largely untrained. And so they were just, we knew that we'd lose them and we'd, we'd have the computers, but we wouldn't have the expertise to to use them anymore. So we really didn't want to lose lose our crew. And um, so uh, Fran and I were, were talking and, well, we could, we could do a fantasy film. No one's ever done a fantasy film like The Seven Voyages of Sinbad for a long time. Um, you know, not very well anyway. So that's where we were thinking. And then we kept talking about ideas and Fran kept um, uh, um, coming up with stuff and I'd say, isn't, isn't that a bit too much like The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit? And, and then she said, yeah, yeah, you're right. And then, and then I'd come up with an idea and, she, and she'd say, isn't, isn't this a bit, bit like The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, isn't it? And so after two or three weeks of this, we thought, well, shouldn't we just find out who's got the rights to... The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. I mean, we we had no clue. I was expecting it would be, you know, George Lucas or Steven Spielberg or somebody would have had these rights t- tied up for decades. But we asked, um, we, we went to our manager, Ken Cammons, and we said to Ken, Ken, could you just find out who owns the um, Tolkien, uh, the rights to Hobbit and Lord of the Rings? And our thought was to do The Hobbit first as a standalone movie. We knew that Lord of the Rings could never be one movie, but, we, but it could probably be two. So we thought we'd, we're looking at three three pictures, uh, the, the Hobbit, make The Hobbit first, release The Hobbit first, and if it's successful, then you go into a two, back, you shoot The Lord of the Rings back to back, but only if The Hobbit is successful. And so anyway, um, he came, uh, King came back and said, you're not going to um, – he said um, um, uh, the rights are owned by, by Saul Zance, but he says but forget about it. So many filmmakers have approached Saul over the years to do um, um, a talking film. I think John Borman had done, recently done a script, and um, I mean, obviously the, the um, Ralph Bakshi one had been done, and there was other filmmakers that had been trying to get so, – so, so Saul Zance had had a constant hammering, hammering at his door, and he just sort of seemed to have the policy of saying no to every, everybody that banged on his door. So we we had our first look deal at Miramax and um, and on some phone call with Harvey because uh, um, we we were just staying in New Zealand the whole time during all this and so we had some phone call with Harvey about you know what we might do next and I you know we talked about the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit but uh, but I said oh look but they're they're owned by this guy called Saul Zance and he, he's not going to part with them and Harvey said I'll get them up Saul. Oh, Saul, owes, Saul owes me a huge favour, and, and and again the the timing was, was sort of was lucky for us because it, this phone call between us and Harvey Weinstein took place about two or three weeks after Harvey had bailed Saul's aunts out of out of the English patient. Fox was was doing the English patient, and Fox had walked had had, had dropped the film, and then Harvey had swooped in and, and given Saul the finance to make it, and then and then um, we. Have this conversation with Harvey. So, two or three weeks after Saul gives um, Harvey the money to do the English patient, Harvey makes a phone call to get the the quid pro quo. Uh, Saul, you've got to give me the you've got to give me a chance at the rights of the of the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. And then very quickly it became we couldn't do the Hobbit because the Hobbit was co-owned by United Artists and still still is as I say. Um, and it was all going to be too hard. Harvey said, "No, no, it's all too hard. Let's just do." Let's just jump straight into Lord of the Rings, and then that um, 
and and that became two. It was two films. It was so th this was now you know you know it was um, Bob Z had done two films with the Back to the Future two and three. I don't know how many other times it happened, but anyway, we we, we were looking at um, doing the Lord of the Rings as two two films back to back. They, uh, Miramax had just been bought by Disney, and apparently they had like a thirty million dollar um, expenditure cap on each film before Disney had to give their approval. You know, they had to make a special approach to Disney, and 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 I don't know what the truth of all this is. I only heard what I, what I heard, but um. Apparently they went to Disney and Disney said, uh, you know, because the budget was something like 150, 180 million for the two Lord of the Rings films, and um, Disney declined to, 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 to increase the the uh, the Miramax cap on the spending. They they didn't um, they didn't want to go there, and I and quite frankly I don't blame them, mm. with that, you know, <laughs> because it was me. The Frighteners hadn't, hadn't done well, so so uh, who would ever be paying that, that sort of money? So. So Harvey, Harvey, Harvey got angry with with Disney, and he said, "Stuff them up. Let's just keep on going and develop, develop it, and 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 some something something will come along." So we spent about twenty twenty million dollars of pre production, which wasn't squandered money. It was a lot of the film had been designed, um, uh, miniatures had been made, armor had been made. You know, there was a lot of tangible things to to um, show for that twenty twenty million. But however, it was clear that Harvey couldn't get any more money, and so he said, "Look, I, I can, I can get Disney to give us 70, 70 million for, for, for one one film." And I said, "Okay, so you're saying we're going to shoot one film? We're going to shoot part one of the Lord of the Rings and release it, and then if it's successful, we'll shoot part two. He says, "No, no, no, no. One film, one, one, one film only. It's a seventy million dollar budget, and you've got to do the whole thing in one one film, and that's what's going to happen." And, and uh, and he gave us a seven-page um, treatment, which I don't think I've ever shown anyone about uh, the Miramax way of reducing the the, the, um, the Lord of the Rings down to uh, to our film. It's it's quite it's hilarious. So when <laughs> when, when they go when they go into the so, well, I mean, one of my favourite sequences in the Fellowship of the Ring, uh, the uh, the, mi the mine the mines of Moria sequence, where the Fellowship goes into the mines under a mountain and they encountered the Balrog, you know, the big fire monster, and Gandalf gets uh, killed and he falls off the bridge and all that. I mean, that's about a twenty-five minutes sequence, which I'm really pr proud of. I'm still pr proud of it. And um, but the uh, the Miramax version of doing the mines of Moria was that they um, you cut to them approaching the, the mines, you then cut to a, um, them sitting around a fire. Afterwards, you know, a campfire, saying, "Gosh, those mines were really scary, weren't, weren't they?" Yes. <laughs> Did you see that huge, big, that huge, big monster? That oh no, and Gandalf got killed. That's terrible. So, <laughs> the, 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 the Miramax way of reducing this down to one film was was that, and, we, and I've still got, I've still got the six or six or seven pages <laughs> where they had laid it all all out, and I just said to them. I said to them, "Look, we I, we just can't do that." I said, "This is this is look, it's uh, you know, there's sure there's a huge number of people in the world that have never read this read this book." For sure, but there is also a lot of people that have, and, and you're guaranteeing that everybody that has read this book, and it was, I think, the most best-selling book outside the Bible. I think, I think at, the, at that time, um, I said you're guaranteed of making something that's going to disappoint everyone that's read this book. Why, why would you do that? I mean, sure, sure, there's there's people that have never read the book that don't have a clue, and you can pull the wool over their eyes, but anyone that's read this book is just going to look at this movie and say, what are, What the hell were they thinking? And so uh, Harvey said, well, you've got to do it or I'm going to get John Madden to direct it and I'll get Hassan Amani to write the script and you guys can just go. Was there something once about Tarantino too, or was that a, he was, did he ever bring up Tarantino? 
No, not in my mind. Now, look, I'm sure a lot of conversations happened that we weren't we weren't in the room for, but not 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 in my mind. Um, but yeah. knowing Quentin, he he'd never he'd never do it in a million years anyway. But he had John Madden and, and Hussein Amani, and, and again, I've I've never spoken to, to those guys. I, and I'm I'm using their names and in the sense that Harvey used their names. They, yeah, they, sure. may, they may not have a clue a clue of, <laughs> of, of about any, any of this, and so. Um, and so we just said to Harvey, no, we 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 can't we we can't do it. We can't get involved in something that's going to just uh, be so obviously dis- disappointing to people. And and we we had the, the we had the pressure on us of all these people at Weta to have to pay for, and it was our golden ticket out to say yes to Harvey would have meant we we had them on salary for another two or three years while we were making this film. But we just couldn't do it, couldn't do it. So um so we um we said no, and we um. And we walked walked away from it, and 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 we were we were officially walked away for about forty eight hours. But Ken Cammons, who I who I who deserves a huge amount of credit, Ken, who's out, who re- represents us, he was angry, and he was angry with Harvey, and there was a lot of lot of other stuff going on that was, and he just he he went to Harvey without with he, um he didn't he didn't talk about it with, with us. We sort of had mentally. Had mentally made the made the cut. We, Fran and I, had had sort of had had to decide not to do it. And at that point, you you don't sort of ooh and ah. You just say, okay, it's done, it's finished. And we, we were beginning to think of what we might do next. Bad taste, bad taste too. Too was was looking pretty good. Um, but um, uh, but Ken went to Harvey and said, look, these guys have killed killed themselves for two years writing writing the script. You can't just treat them like this. And so Harvey then then gave Ken an impossible. Um, you know, so 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 uh, so Ken said to Harvey something along the lines of, "You've got to let them have this and turn around for a, for a for a period. Give, give them a shot at setting it up somewhere else. You 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 want to make one film, they want to make two. At least give them a shot at doing that." So Harvey's put a, a bunch of um, uh, conditions on it. It was we we had, I, th- I think we had uh, one or two weeks. Yeah, the clock was ticking. One or two weeks, we had, we had to get somebody who would make two movies because obviously he was offering to make one. So we couldn't just find a, um, a studio that would do one Lord of the Rings film. We had to find a studio that would do two Lord of the Rings films, and uh, he he and Bob would get five percent of the gross of whoever, whoever made these films, whoever financed them, had to give away five percent of the gross to Harvey, Harvey and Bob Weinstein. And so um, we actually um, we, we we came to LA at that point. We um, we had a lot of photographs of all the models. As I say, the twenty million dollar pre-production had actually got a lot of stuff made. So I was able to at least I was able to shoot a, a showreel of all the of all the stuff. So we came and we pitched it. We pitched it to to just about everybody in town. Everybody in town passed. Oh, let me. We literally got notes. We got no thank yous from from virtually everybody, um, apart from New Line. And New Line was the last meeting we took, because no, we, we we sort of you look you look at the list of what's of what your meetings are, and there was only six or seven really. Polygram was one. Polygram were very enthusiastic, but they were being sold to some working working type. Uh, I don't know. They were, I forget now. But they were they were in the process of being sold, and they said, "Well, we we we'd love to do it, but we've got to get through the sales process." And I said, "Well, how long is it going to take? Oh, about four or five months." And you know, Harvey had, had given us this fourteen day window. He said, "Well, that's not going to work." So it, it wasn't like there was people that, that were unenthusiastic, but it was just not going to not going to pan out. So New Line were on the bottom of the list because we just didn't think for a million years that New Line would. Be interested in this, and so we went to New Line for our last meeting, having been turned down by everybody else. And um, and Bob Shea, I, I, I knew Bob Shea slightly, very, very slightly. And um, 
And we arrived for the meeting. Mark Odeski, who worked at New Line at the time, he took me to one side and he said, look, you know, because I, I had a 20-minute showreel. It was a 20-minute reel I'd made with all the masks and the, and the miniatures and the armour and trying to sort of give people a sense of what it would be like. He said, look, Bob's, um, Bob's um, agreed to watch your sh um, showreel, but, but don't be alarmed if he just gets up halfway through, doesn't say a word and walks out because that's, <laughs> that's what Bob does. And so then, I, then so we're all sitting there in this conference room with a TV and, a, and it was a VHS tape, tape in those days sitting there and then, and then there's a word that Bob Shea wants me to go to his office. And so I go, go to his office and Bob Shea gives me this whole lecture. You know, you know he, was, he was very sweet, very, very nice. He gave me a lecture saying, listen, Peter, you know, we've, we've liked the films you've made. For, we'd love to work with you. You know, I don't think we're going to be doing this film. So he was basically leading me, leading me down softly before he'd even seen a, a frame of this um, 20-minute film. He's saying, look, I don't think this is going to be the one that we're going to work on together, but I've agreed to watch it because I, I have respect for you. Um, but, you know, it, it's really not the sort of thing that we do. So um, so let, let's let's go go and watch it. And when I, when I went back in the conference room, Fran was sitting down there, and I just, I just with my eyes, I just signaled her. I said, no, this is, this is don't even have hope. This is a waste, waste of time. Because <laughs> Bob had already effectively told me he wasn't going to do it before he'd even seen it. And then so we sat, we sat there and I was waiting for Bob to get up and walk out. It was the most agonising 20 minutes because we had music and Tim score and, we, you know, it was just, you just sat there quietly watching this thing and I, could, and I could see the back of Bob's head expecting any second for him to stand up and leave. And he, he didn't. He sat, sat there the whole time and then it's, it's almost become um, a thing of myth now, but it's, it's true. He, the, the, uh, you know, he was going to say the first words. We, 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 we were just completely quiet when the thing finished. We we're going to say a thing. And, and he, said, um, he said, so just uh, yes, tell me, I don't, I don't, I don't understand it, send it at all. And, and, I'm, and I'm thinking, yeah, God Christ, you don't, <laughs> you don't understand it. He said, I just don't understand why, why, when it's three books, why are you only doing two films? And and that literally was code. That was the what he said, and that was code. It, you know, you, you'd, you'd have to be in the room to get the subjects of it all. But that was code for the fact that he's saying New Line are interested in doing three films. You know, and um, from that point on, we had, we we had, and we'd written two scripts. We'd written a part one and a part two script. So we had to throw those out, rush back to New Zealand, and, and um, as, as as fast as we could write three three um screenplays which was actually much much easier because you, you you because you do have the three books the return of the king two two towers and and um and fellowship of the ring sorry fellowship of the ring return of the king and the two, no god i'm getting fellowship of the ring two towers and return of the king <laughs> <laughs> well it's been a been a few years <laughs> I, I won the, tri the trivia prize. Um, oh, well. <laughs> no, could, yeah, so you, you do have three books, and it's always easier to write a script right. based on a book, you know, rather than having to just to get halfway through the second book and then stop. You know, so well, thank God that was uh, his reaction, and not only that, but that you guys could do it in New Zealand, which was important to you. That you could do all three at once, which was sort of unheard of, out of sequence, uh, all three. Because I guess really the idea is if the first one comes out and had flopped, there's you weren't gonna get to do the other two. So this was this was the way to do it, right? And then um just so people know the scale of what you achieved, I I know I think people have the idea, but just very quickly I'm gonna just say and correct me if any of this is wrong. 
15 months of shooting spanning October 99 to December 2000, 274 shooting days, 22 speaking roles, 23,000 extras and crew, 48,000 props, 350 sets, 100 plus locations, 21 cameras, as many as seven units shooting simultaneously, 4.5 million feet of film. Uh, Weta's staff grows from 30 to 250 during the production. It's just incredible. And I, and the, the other thing that I think people may not realize, VFX were obviously so central to this with Gollum and other things, but also you were doing incredible things that sort of harkened back to your childhood with more practical effects. I mean, the shooting of the force perspective, all of that. And I, I mean, we all know what, what, happened with the films but i guess i just as a last quick thing about that film before we enter the home stretch i mean can you in hindsight believe i must have taken you a few years to process what uh ordeal that was and to the extent that i think you said i'm never going to do anything like this again before you sort of got roped into the to the hobbit when when guillermo fell out but i mean that is a that is a just a it must have must have taken years uh off your life in a sense, right? Before adding them back on with all the success. <laughs> well, it was it was two hundred and seventy four days of principal photography. I'll always I'll always uh, remember that figure. Two hundred and seventy four days of of shooting to, to do all three. One, one one aspect of it that never really gets talked about, but was again in hindsight, it was helpful. Is that I mean, we, we were shooting in New Zealand, and New Line was based um, over in, in, in LA. Mark Odeski was our um, was our point person from New Line, and, and Mark Mark was fantastic. He, he he you know really kind of helped keep the wolf from the door and and, and acted as you know very much as a, as a go between between the filmmaker and this studio. But um, one of the things that was happening during that period that people have forgotten about is that I, I I'm always grateful to the fact that there was a Period in time, maybe for two years, where time, where 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 New Line were owned by Time Warner, and Time Warner was being sold. I don't know if you remember all that. It was um sure. It was it was like Jerry Levin was part of Time, and and there was Ted Turner around. I, I can't remember it all now, but um, and it was a lot of media attention was was on the sale of Time Warner or the splitting up, the dividing of Time Warner into Time and. And one, 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 you know, it was one of those sort of big corporate moments, which went on for months and months and months. And I always credit that with with actually giving us freedom because it, it felt like to us like New Line, New Line was so consumed because it was all because Time Warner, uh, how that sort of division and how that restructure of that of that conglomerate ended up was actually going to dictate whether whether New Line survived or not. And so it, it was both good and bad as it one. I think they, they, they were so focused, uh, the, the uh, New Line and Warner Brothers people were so focused on the, the political behind the scenes stuff that was going on at the time that they, we sort of flew under the radar a wee bit, which, which I think in hindsight was, I was very grateful for. But also it also meant that every, every article that got written around that time while we were in principal photography before anyone had seen anything was all about how, you know, uh, what's going to happen to a new line once the, once the Time Warner um, split occurs, you know, a new line, and then it would talk about new line, then it would talk about how the, the folly of this Lord of the Rings film that they've entered into, they're doing, they're making three films at once, and how stupid is that, and it's a, it's a, it's a crazy last-minute roll of the dice to try to save, save, them, save their skins. I mean, it was, I'm, I'm not quoting anything exactly, but it was, a, but it was like we were, we had freedom in New Zealand to make this film because they were, their attention was elsewhere, but all the articles that were being written, probably, probably some, some in, 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 in the uh, Hollywood 
before, before my time. <laughs> before your time, okay. But all the articles that were being written couldn't help but um, but tie us into the 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 possible demise of Uline. Well, clearly, once this Lord of the Rings thing is a huge failure, Uline aren't going to survive, and so it was all this. Da, da, da. So we we had this we had this freedom, but we also had this doom laden commentary for a year. For, it went on and on and on and on. But that was good because I'm I'm the sort of guy, and a lot of our crew and and, and um, Fran and everyone is that if people say you know you're gonna fail, then it makes you all the more determined. You you, you give it that extra 10% or 15, 15%, you really dig deep to prove prove these people wrong. So I'm, I'm actually grateful to the fact that we were we were, we were the the, um, the subject of a lot of dooms, doomsaying, you know, because to, to, in, in my mind, looking back, that made us really so, so determined to make well, and, and we'll just note that the two movies, the, the only two movies at the time that Return of the King was released, the only two movies that ever grossed more than a billion dollars worldwide were both movies that people projected to fail, Titanic and your movie. And so and then, of course, Return of the King ties the number of record number of 11 Oscars and all of that. But um and and it's and I guess since then you've really focused and and rightly so been able to do the things that were most important to you in the sense of King Kong you get to realize that childhood dream and and I know you've said some of those scenes with New York and the city towards the end are some of the things you're proudest of having done. There's the Hobbit, which again something you'd wanted to do that gets realized. They shall not grow. This amazing uh, ability of of sort of reviving World War One, which in its own way kind of led or prepared you for Beatles Get Back, right? I mean, here you have excavated the past, brought it back to life in a way that, you know, restoring footage and making people look at things differently that they thought they knew. Um, can you connect how, I guess, They Shall Not Grow comes out in 2018, Beatles Get Back is 2022, but it really started with, Beatles Get Back starts with outreach from Apple about something completely unrelated, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I had had a. Um, I, I mean, I, I was as you as we talked about. I was an only child, but the um, the person that I'd met in my life who was the closest to a brother to me was um, Andrew Lisney, who was a DP on the Lord of the Rings films and then Kong and the Hobbit films and stuff. And um, towards uh, after the Hobbit had been finished, Andrew died died suddenly. He he had a heart heart attack and uh, and 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 died, and that was a huge loss for me. Um, because he, you know, and and I had no stomach really to make another film with a with a different DP. Um, it's kind of weird. I just didn't want to. And so when the Imperial War Museum came along and um, said, "Oh, would you, are you interested in using our First World War film archive and doing something special for the hundredth um, anniversary of the First World War?" I said, "Sure." And and the First World War has been a topic because because my grandfather um, fought in the First World War, and so I've, I've I've always been interested in that. So I said, "Sure." Um, and then I um. I, I was in London looking at uh, World War One footage at, at the museum, and I, and I went. Um, Apple asked to see me. Apple Core, the Beatles, Apple, because they had had heard. I, I must have done an interview at the time with somebody. They'd heard that I was interested in, in um, AR, not so much VR, but AR. I, th I thought that was at the time. You know, that was very, very exciting. It still hasn't quite got there yet. But um, uh, back in, in 2015 or 16, it felt like it was it was hitting there. And and they they and, and internally, Apple had been talking about some Beatles museum exhibition, live exhibition thing that they thought that AR might be useful for that, and they didn't know anything about it. So they they heard I was in town looking at museum footage, so they asked me to come in and just talk to them about AR. 
you know, just Jeff Jones and um, Jonathan Clyde from Apple, and and um, and so I, I and, and being a being a long term Beatles fan, I was I was you know happy to chat to them about it, and I. And, and, and I was thinking, and, and I was showing. I had an iPad, and I had some of the restored footage from "They Shall Not Grow Old," which they were very impressed by. And I said, "Look, if you've got old Beatles footage that you want want us to restore, you know, we could we can do we can do that because they've obviously, you know, that's 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 all that's all they really have is the is the archive um, to, to look after, and they put." And 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 then I, I said at the meeting, um, I said, well, what, have you got all the outtakes from a Let, Let It Be? Because I knew that there was a lot of film shot, and I knew it was way way more than ever got seen. But I had no idea if it survived, because like you know, the outtakes from A Hard Day's Night don't survive. The outtakes from Help don't survive. You know, it's not it's not unusual for the for the outtakes just to be thrown away at the time. And and they said, yeah, we've got every single every single outtake. We've got sixty hours of film and hundred hundred and forty hours of hours of um, audio because and I was thinking about using they could use the I mean it wasn't even me really it was just me advising them thinking you could use, use some of those outtakes for the AR the um, museum things somehow because at least it was a bunch of footage that that, that, that has ne never been seen because otherwise when you think of the Beatles you're you know you, you, when you shut your eyes you're thinking of Shea Stadium or the Ed Sullivan show or the press conferences you know you know what help a hard day's night it's just a limited and the fact that there's a whole, uh, you know, as soon as they said it, they've got they've got all this footage, and but they said, well, we we don't know whether we'd want to use it for the museum thing because we're thinking of doing a, a um, we're thinking of making some kind of a film using the outtakes, and this is also coinciding with I think they were in their last few weeks of post-production on, on um, eight, eight days a week, Ron Howard's film. So they were clearly in the mind of thinking, what what are we going to do next? As 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 the Beatles, you know, what what are we going to do next? And so that conversation just led on to, to um, the idea that I would uh, I'd have a go at doing something with with the uh, outtakes, and, and and that suited me because again I, I wasn't I was in no hurry to go back to finding a, another DP to to work with. So so you know I I got to work with 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 footage that, that a DP had shot a hundred years ago on on they shall not grow old. I got to work with footage that a, a DP had shot fifty years earlier for um for get back. So um. And just amazing, like if somebody hasn't seen it, the stuff, it's magic. Like you see the song Get Back coming out of coming out of nowhere. You see George quitting briefly. But I think the thing that you've said, and I, I find it the most interesting, is that even the Beatles, the surviving Beatles, Paul and Ringo, and they had this misconception that that was the end of thing. That was where it all went wrong. It was a disastrous time. Uh, you were not interested in making a documentary about the Beatles breaking up, and this is not that. No, no. Well, on that, after that first meeting in London, you know, when I just described, I was supposed to fly back to New Zealand with my World War One footage to carry on working on. They shall not grow old. But I, I extended the trip for a week, and I said to Apple, "Look, I, you know, this, this isn't really." Because they were saying they were starting to talk to me about 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 if you were making this film, what would you make it about? And I said, well, I I, I need to see the footage. <laughs> I can't I can't you know I'm I mean, the first thing I need to do because I don't want to make a, a breakup film. So and I I was thinking I wasn't saying it. I was thinking, God, if um if let it be you know the movie Let It Be was what they allowed people to see in 1970. What what is it that they held back from people? How how awful is this footage going to be? Is what I was that was that was what was in my head. Um, so I wasn't really wanting to see it particularly because I, I love the Beatles and I didn't want to see them arguing with each other and fighting and all that sort of stuff. It didn't, didn't make, make me happy in the slightest. But anyway, I, I said to them, look, why don't I just extend my trip for a week? I'll come in every morning at, at um, 8, 8, 8 o'clock in the morning into the conference room, TV, uh, video, and I'll just start w watching it from day one, shot number one, just just 
let's just let's just screen it in, in exact exact uh, order, order that it was shot in one day at a time. And so in, in that week, I only got to day three, day three and a half. Um, but 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 that alone, those first three days, made me, I was laughing so much, and I could see that George was getting very annoyed sometimes with what was happening. I could see, you know, you know I, could, I, could, I could sort of see the dynamic on those first three or four days. I could see there, um, there's this comfort at being at uh, Tw Twickenham Film Studios because Twickenham was never a, a place that they were going to record mu music. It was rehearsal space. They were literally there to rehearse. And Michael Lindsay Hogg had two cameras and was filming them. So the audio was was being captured by the by the Nagras that the um, that the film crew had. It's not being captured on eight eight track tape or four track tape. Um, and and so you know I could see how awkward that was. I, I could I was sort of analysing watching them, but but they were basically, you know, they were they were okay. Uh, they they it became much much more enjoyable for them when they went to Savile Row, which was like day day uh, twelve, I think. That is the first day at Savile Row. Yeah, and all the way through me watching it, Jonathan, and, and then eventually I had to go back to New Zealand so Apple kindly uh, bundled, bundled it all up on some sort of discs for me so I could quietly watch it, watch the remainder of it when I got back home. And they kept saying to me, well, what, what's the film about? What's the film about? Which is, which is a perfectly reasonable comment. And, um, and I just said, well, let me see it, let me see it. And then when I watched it for, all the way through, J Jabez Olsen, who, um, who, who, who I've edited with for years, I, I really wanted him, him to see it. And I was also happy to see it again. So then I sat down and watched it all through again so, uh, with Jabez. And, and it just became obvious to us that, you know, the story is just the story as they, ex they experienced it. They, they set out to do something on the 2nd of January 1969. They ended up on the rooftop at Savile Row on, on, the, um, on the 30th of uh, January. And what happens in between just day by day just t tell the story as they experience it. So, so that immediately, you know, gave us the, the concept that we're not going to have any modern, modern day interviews. We're not going to have anybody talking from today who is remembering back to that time. Because one, as you, you say, the, the, the memories are not that great. And after 50 years, who can, who can blame anybody? But also, um, we didn't want, I, I just, I was so determined, having spent 40 years as a Beatle fan reading a lot of crap about this this period in in, in very prestigious Beatle books, I, I was so determined not to feed that fire anymore, and I just wanted to simply tell the story as it as it was, and um and so to tell it as it was, I wanted the only people talking to be the Beatles in January '69. I didn't want Ringo and Paul talking now. I didn't want um, to interview Michael or or Glenn Johns or anybody now. I just wanted the 1969 Beatles to tell us this, to 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 experience as it's happening with them. And that was interesting because once you take away the safety stop of, of having a narration or having a, a modern modern day interviewer who can plug up the holes in a story, it really makes you listen to every line that somebody's saying because any 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 anything that anybody says at any time could be a, a, a really a really valuable thing to fill in a hole in the storytelling. So we spent so Jabez and I spent months sort of eavesdropping on 1969 um, conversations, and because uh, the story is as much in the audio tapes as as it is in the footage. I mean, you know, basically there were two cameras, and and each camera had a Nagra sound sound recorder, and the, and the sound tapes 
the t sound tapes last for about 16 minutes and they're not hugely expensive. Um, you know, the, the, the rolls of 16 mil film last for 10 minutes and, and it's a lot more, lot more expensive than sound. And so the sound recorders tended to just, you know, run the roll of sound out, load up the next roll, press, press, uh, press record and, and go. And so, and so the actual story of, of the Let It Be sessions is pretty almost intact on, on those sound tapes. And then the, the film crew with no coordination between the sound recorders and then the film crew would just turn on the cameras on and off at certain times. So you'd get, so the sound recorders would be recording for seven minutes, eight minutes, and then eight and a half minutes, the, the camera would, 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 would flick on, it would be on for 17 seconds and then, then it's off and, and, the, and the sound is kept carrying on. So it's like, you know, the sound was the, became the, um, the, real, the real Bible for us, the um, sound, the Nagra tapes. Well, it's just the most incredible achievement because even though it's not, I mean, people see this and they see, I guess, two, three episodes of basically two or so hours, but it's really, I think, 22 short films in a way. I mean, each day, it feels like that must, just what a challenge. And, and to listen to some of it, I wonder what it was like for the for, for Paul and Ringo to hear Paul saying 50 years ago, won't it be hilarious <laughs> if in 50 years people are saying the Beatles broke up because Yoko was on an amp or something? Like, it's it's just crazy. But um, when we first heard that, because uh, we, we heard it for the first time, and, and that was 2019, so it was so exactly. 50 years too who the dot? Oh it was. It, it was really. It was a spooky thing, thing to hear. I have to say, but um, you know, and, and and I've also I've also felt that a lot of Beatles accounts of the Beatles, not not all by any stretch, but a lot of books that are written about them and everything. They there seems to be a, 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 a need to somehow favour one Beatle over another or take sides or do this or that. And I just thought, well, these are four guys who are who've got the same the same uh, thing things things that. They're dealing with the we we do. They're dealing with relationships. They're trying to be creative. They're trying, you know, they're they're they dealing with pressure, with deadlines, with friendships. And I just thought that these. I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to impose a story. I mean, those thirty days that they um you know that, well, that was twenty two days of actual filming and recording. Those twenty two days contain all the drama you need. You don't have to. To, to set one, you don't have to set John against Paul or anything else. You just, you know, so I, I was absolutely determined not to do that, just to be complete, completely neutral and just to show it as, it as it occurred. Well, with our last minute, I hope I can do something where I just ask you for the a sentence or two of what comes to mind about a few quick random things. To begin with, I wonder, where have you most observed the influence of The Lord of the Rings in the 20 years since the first one dropped 21 years uh i wonder if, if you know is it a game of thrones is it where do you most see the impact and the influence well i i, I um look i mean it's, it's it's hardly it's more for other people to say than me i the first time i became aware of of the fact that 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 another filmmaker might have seen the lord of the rings was when i saw King, kingdom of heaven which which orlando was in so i was interested in seeing that because all he was in it and it was one of the first big films he made after he, he finished return of the king and so and when i saw saw kingdom of heaven i i, I started to recognize not you know i'm, I'm not not recognizing shots or anything no, nobody stole anything but i'm I, I i just started to see that maybe the battle scenes i'd done had, had inspired other filmmakers to do similar sort of shots because 
you know, because I guess the, th- the thing that we pioneered on Lord of the Rings, which hadn't happened before, were were the battles with with a ten, a tens of thousands of people. You, usually in the fifties or sixties or seventies, you were making a big epic film. You'd shoot it in U- Yugoslavia or Spain. The government would give you two thousand soldiers uh, to to dress up in um, Roman togas or something, and then and you know, you know two thousand soldiers looks pretty good on screen. But but battles that have ten, twenty, thirty thousand people, that's only that that, that could only be done with CGI and so um, to me that that was if, if there's anything that we we gave to the um, to the the ongoing continuity of filmmaking was the fact that we were able to, to open up the CGI um, bag of tricks to to have huge huge battle scenes yeah yeah next one uh, two weeks from tonight will be the premiere of a uh, new version of the Lord of the Rings on Amazon. Apparently it costs almost a half billion dollars. You've been in that moment before something comes out where people were saying, this is crazy. What do you make of the idea of somebody spending almost a half billion dollars on a Lord of the Rings TV series? Is there going to be an audience for that? Uh, well, 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 I'll be, I'll be, I'll be watching it. So, um, so there'll be at least one, one person. No, no. I mean, I, I look, they, they asked me if I wanted to be involved in it very right up the front. And I said, um, and I said to them, it's an impossible question to answer without seeing a script because, because you know, they, they were doing a script. It wasn't, it wasn't going to be, be us. And so they said, oh, well, we, as soon as we get the first couple of scripts, we'll send them to you to look at. And, and, and the scripts never, never sh- showed up. It was, it was the last thing I heard, which is fine. I mean, I went on to do, they, 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 they shut up old and get back. I've got no complaints at all. I mean, I, I'm not the sort of guy that wishes ill, Ill will on anybody. Um, filmmaking's hard enough. And if somebody makes a good film or a good TV show, it's a course to celebrate. So, you know, the one thing that I am looking forward to is actually seeing it as a perfectly neutral viewer because I because I, I always felt when we did the Lord of the Rings movies that I was the unlucky person who never got to see them as a as a sort of a, you know as a coming coming out of the blue type film. I I you know by the time they were screening I was I, I was immersed in it for, for five, five or six years. I, I even I, I it was such a loss for me not to be able to experience them like everyone else was, that I all, I actually did seriously consider going to a uh, some some um, hypnotherapy guy and to hypnotise me to make me forget about the films and forget about the work I'd done over the last six, six or seven years. So at least I could sit and and enjoy them right. like a, like a <laughs> audience. I, ne- I never followed through with it, but I did. I did talk to Darren Darren O'Brien about that because, and he he thought he could do it, but it, 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 it. Well, you anticipate though the next question, which is I was curious, uh, you know. How recently have you gone and watched those films and, and watch, you know, watching your uh, work of years ago, uh, are you able to sort of step back and say, wow, I look what I did? Um, I, I don't tend to watch my own movies that much. I mean, I, 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 more so they shall not grow old and, 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 and get back because I don't consider those to be quite, I, I didn't go through the tre- the, the uh, well, I was going to say the trenches, which is maybe not the best um, analogy for waking up well. But um, I don't, you know, I, I I was working with other people's material, and, and um, Michael Lindsay Hogg shot amazing stuff, which he should get huge credit for for, for get back. Um, so I, I I you know I, I'm happy to look at that that stuff anytime, but. Um, the feature films, I just I finish them and I don't revisit them. Um, Lord of the Rings movies we watched. 
before we made The Hobbit, so that's probably back in 2009, maybe I, I watched The Lord of the Rings films at the last time I saw it. We had, um, we, we had a, a um, Christmas about three or four years ago and Kate Winslet came down to New Zealand with her family to, to, to spend Christmas with us and we talked and, and both Kate and I realised we hadn't seen Heavenly Creatures for, I think it was 23 years, 24 years. And, and and I said, oh, I, I don't, I, I don't want to see it. And she said, no, I haven't want to see it. And then we said, well, well, should we just watch it, watch it ourselves, ourselves um, tonight? So Kate and I sat in a, sat in the in the lounge and we put it on and we um and that was the first time I'd seen heavenly creatures as that was sitting with Kate after about twenty two wow. years. And, and what and was it, that like? Me, she, she she could she could remember everything. She she could remember the next line she was going to say. She could remember. Oh, that was that, that was that was the day that we did this. And I mean, to me, I I'd, half of half of it was. Say a blur, which was actually quite fun. Quite fun to watch one of your own movies after you've forgotten <laughs> most, most of it. Which you know, 20, 25 years, it's a long time. So, but she, I mean, her mind's like a steel trap. She was, uh, she was giving me a, a running co commentary on what was going to happen next. I was going, yes, gay, I know, I know, I know. Yes, mate, just, just calm down. <laughs> well, here's the last one for you. Uh, an article that I read prepping for this noted, quote. The Return of the King would be the last time, at least to date, that the Academy would heap all of its, all its laurels on the biggest movie of the year, close quote. Now, the gap between the tastes of the public and the tastes of the Academy have never been wider. And I'm not saying one side is right and one side or, you know, which side is right. But that does seem to be the fact. And I wonder, in your view, is that a problem? Is there something that should be done about that? What does that say? Well, isn't that? And again, I'm only just speculating. Isn't that connected to the streaming? Really, that the that you know, it, it's that, that you know. Look, I mean, there was no streaming when when um, Return of the King came out. So it's, uh, and I'm not saying streaming would have affected Return of the King, but it, it affects that mid range. You know, the, you know. I mean, take Return of the King out of it, but if you go back to to uh, Tootsie and um, and um, you know you know ordinary people and all those films that used to win Oscars, they, they were all the mid-range films that that, that that cinema used to thrive on. And we used to love going to see those films, and they don't really exist in that in that way anymore. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, I I'm not really answering your question in it with any precision, but I kind of think the industry has changed so much, not necessarily for the better. Um, that that now and you know and and now the whole thing is if you're going to give the Oscar to a big successful uh, box office sort of movie, then it's likely to be a Marvel film. And do people give Oscars to the Marvel films? That's the dilemma they weren't thinking about. It's just like I, I don't know. It should just be about work, well, good work, well done. That your peers um, celebrate good good work, regardless of where it comes from. But the story of the Oscars not awarding the you know the, the, their awards to the most successful or popular films but giving them to smaller films has almost become a story itself it almost feeds itself you know and and I don't think that's particularly healthy either it becomes very self self-conscious you know would Lord of the Rings even be something that could get made today as a film as three films uh, I, I, probably not no, no, no not not with a director like me with a a studio that put its, its money on the line for three movies. I don't think so. No, no, I, I, I doubt it. I very, very much doubt it. I mean, you know, I, I look at the, the Lord of the Rings TV series where um, Jeff Bezos has put all that money into the series. That, that's sort of in a way. That's, I mean, it's a different circumstances, and it's a, but it, but that's you know that is a company bidding the farm to some degree on, on Tolkien. So it's so it's sort of you know it's connected to what we did, but in a, in a different form, of course. Well, I can't thank you enough for all the hours of entertainment. Thank you for the time doing this. And uh, just uh, can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks so much, Peter. Thanks so much, Scott. Thank you. 
Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.